Welcome everyone to another episode of the Veterans and Ag Podcast, brought to you by AGD Consulting. I'm your host, Mike Desop, and here we explore the stories and insights from the military veteran and supporter communities who are leading the way for vets in agribusiness, ag tech, and agripreneurship. We swap stories, talk ag, and show how the grassroots nature of the ag community can be a natural fit for the military veteran. This is the second installment in our two-part series with Sawyer Clark from Goldleaf Farming. In the previous episode, Sawyer and I talked about his early farming experiences in Oregon, his active duty army time, and his transition from the military service into business school, then entrepreneurship before finally landing at Goldleaf. In this episode, Sawyer and I dive into the details around Goldleaf Farming, who they are, what they do, why they do it the way they do it, and how they approach both farmland investment and management. It's a unique position they sit in, both investor and manager, but it creates a sort of vertical integration, if you will, in the farmland management space that sets them aside from their peers. Their long-term vision, ability to invest in that vision, and skill to make that vision a reality are things Goldly Farming does quite well. Enjoy. kind of play in the um like the institutional or the commercial farm world and so a lot of the other players in that world are um focused on um purchasing land owning the land for the long term and typically collecting rent from a tenant um they're really um, like uh ag real estate investors and much like a commercial real estate investor or a multifamily investor they want to collect rent from the people that are using or um, living in or, or renting the property, um, we take a different approach, and that is uh, we want to we want to own the land and we want to have that kind of real estate underpinning, but we also want to do all the farming. Um, and and our when we purchase a farm or we purchase open ground and plant a farm, um, we're we're focused on, you know, do we want to farm this for twenty years and. Um, and that's a little different. There are some other kind of hybrid firms that do what we do similar, or they've got like a, a semi-in-house custom farming arm that's mm-hmm. kind of related to the real estate thing. But um, or there, um, there are also groups that are like us that are that'll be like a big family um, who the second generation or third generation. Uh, farmers kind of looped in some other partners to help expand. So they're kind of a family business that has grown to have additional investors, but they still farm it themselves. So there's kind of a couple different um, uh, like peer firms of ours as they kind of, if you categorize them. My understanding with the strategy, the first strategy you proposed around most institutional investors looking at just sort of, you know, real estate renting and that sort of being the return is that they're less or not at all exposed to to production risk, right? Because they're not actual farm managers. You yeah. all appear to be comfortable with that risk, and if that's a correct assumption, why? How do you how do you get comfortable with that, and why do you choose to take that risk? Yeah, yeah, that's generally a correct assumption. Um, we see, uh, and you see that play out in how the leases are structured with a, with a, you know an institutional landlord or a you know a corporate farming landlord. And the, the tenant they put in place, um, the leases are either there's basically two types of leases uh, or rents payments. One is just cash, cash per acre. Um, the other is like a cash floor and then a crop share. 
if you hit some hurdle, like, and some of them are just pure revenue. Like if you, you know, uh, the landlord will share in 10% of the proceeds over $2,000 per acre or something. And mm -hmm. some of them are mm -hmm. a little more sophisticated to make sure the, the tenant can pay their cost first. And then, but that's the typical structures is cash and or uh, a crop share. Um, the, but either way, there's kind of a cash rent Typically, there's a cash rent floor so that the landlord doesn't have the operational risk and have the, or the commodity price risk either. They're just right. They collect rent and the, the tenant takes on operational risk, crop price risk, everything. Um, we are the tenant, by the way, on four or five of our farms now where um, we uh, most of them are family owned, um, long time um, family owned properties that they wanted to keep in the property, but maybe the older generation has passed away and none of the next generation want a farm, but they don't want to sell the, they don't want to sell the farm. So okay. Okay. somewhere along the way, um, uh, usually it's that first generation who will say, Hey, let's, let's put a long-term lease on this property so that my kids don't have to be farmers, but the farm stays in the family and they can collect rent. Um, so there's, um, four or five farms where we are the, the tenant, um, um, so, but we, we choose, especially there, we take operational risk, but everywhere we take operational risk, um, um, because in, in the crops that we, uh, we farm almonds, pistachios, and dates, uh, we like the, the macro tailwinds, um, we, which are growing consumer demand over the long term, um, and constrained supply. Um, and we want to, we want to build a team. Uh, that's really good at farming those couple of crops so that we can, um, you know, the, the goal is to be better than the average farmer or the average, you know, farming group um, to maybe do a little better than the macro tailwind would suggest. But we want to be in a place in the macro tailwind because, you know, it's, it's hard, even if you're a little better, if, if the wind is blowing in your face macroeconomically, mm -hmm. it's hard to be successful. So part of, with that increased risk comes potentially higher reward, right? If you can, in fact, yep. if you can, in fact, you know, be blown across the landscape, if you will, by the macro yep. tailwinds, but also farm better than, than everybody else around you. Yep. Yeah. And a lot of the farming better isn't like, uh, you know, being uniquely genius, Um it, it's it's some some of it is scale of purchasing power. Some of it is um, being able to bring in capital to do things that uh, a smaller uh, a smaller organization or family farm couldn't. Uh, for example, a lot of farms um, that we uh, purchase will have well water, and they will be in a they'll be physically in a district where they could receive district water, surface water, which is you know snow melt typically. Mm -hmm. But it takes hundred two hundred thousand dollars to put in the pumps and the filters and the pipes to hook physically hook into the ditch. And if, if that's your only farm um, or your small group or your family farm, that's a lot of money um, to invest in that system. But we will, we will come in and build that system because we say, Hey, we want to farm this for 20 years. Water is our most precious resource on all of our farms. We want to use as much snow melt surface water as we possibly can. So we're going to, a part of our business plan will be, build that system in day one. So some of it isn't like, you know, we're uniquely, we have a perfect farming playbook for all of our crops. Right. It's more 
we have a long-term view and we can bring, you know, we can raise debt or equity capital to do some projects that most farmers would agree are the right thing to do, but not everyone right. has the ability to actually do them. Yeah. I mean, I suspect that those are two kind of key levers that you all have the ability to pull that, you know, some folks, especially at smaller scale, don't. How are you, how do you view kind of crop insurance as one of those risk mitigation factors? Use it, yeah. don't use it. Yeah, we use it uh, everywhere we can is the short answer. Um, almonds and pistachios have crop insurance that's um, kind of USDA or, you know, farm bill supported. Um, and um, um, which I suspect is similar to the crop insurance systems that are set up for, you know, row crops and big um, kind of the, some of the, the commodity crops that are much, uh, much more common to be farmed in the U.S. Um, so what that works for us is on a per farm basis, uh, each year we, um, we can pick uh, a level to insure our crops. So on the given farm, um, the, our, our insurance brokers will say, okay, here's, you know, the historic yield for this county or the historic yield for this farm, if it's mature enough, is X. So you can buy insurance to 60% of that, 70% of that, 80% yeah. of that pounds per acre. Mm -hmm. And the government insured price or the price the government has set to insure those pounds is $2 a pound or is one ninety-five a pound. So that means you are, this is how much you will receive. Um, and it, you know, if you go below that, if your yield is below this, this is how much you will be kind of short up to. And that will cost you X thousands of dollars to in premiums to pay that. So that's how it works in almonds and pistachios. Um, in dates, there is no crop insurance like that. And um, that's, I haven't looked too deeply in, into the why, but I think it's because it's a small crop. And, um, you know, there's 2.5 to 3 billion pounds of almonds a year produced in the U.S. There's 1.5, we think this year, it looks like 1.5 billion pounds of pistachios produced in the U.S. Um, dates, maybe 100 million pounds mm. of, of majules, at least, which is what we farm. Maybe not right. even that much. Majules and daglets, I don't know, maybe... I'm just guessing maybe 150 million pounds, 200 million pounds. So it's way smaller than almonds or pistachios. And so I just don't think there's, it's not a big enough, um, you know, constituent farming community to say, Hey, we, we need this support. And this is, you know, it's just not, doesn't get the attention paid that some of the bigger crops get. If, if operational tailwinds are strong across the three of these, and you're assuming additional production risk, why, take on a crop like dates that doesn't have that sort of safety net? Yeah, uh, good question. Um, we took on dates because we think it might be, it, it was, you know, when we bought the farm four years ago, we thought it might be our third crop. So the time we had, we started with almonds, we'd done, you know, a year or two of just almond farms and we started adding pistachio farms. We liked, we looked at the macro, we looked at the agronomy, looked at the regions, looked at the climates, looked at the soils. What does it need? What's the trends? And pistachios and almonds are very similar in terms of mm -hmm. um, agronomy, climate, water use. Pistachios need less, but similar infrastructure, similar tractors, similar, you know, pretty, very similar. Dates are different, but they still have um, growing consumer tailwinds, especially healthy eating, 
um, different types of sugars, you know, many kind of health food, you know, kind bars, Laura bars, uh, a lot of Whole Foods and Trader Joe's type brands want to use date sugars and syrups because um, they taste good, but they have a lot of nutrients that you don't get from a corn syrup or cane sugar or something. So we like those tailwinds and they require really unique climate. They need to be super hot in the summer. Um, they need to have low humidity. They need to have lots of water. And so those are only a few spots in the world. There's mm -hmm. kind of the Coachella area, the Yuma area in the U.S., um, and then some Israel and then some North Africa and a few other niche places. Um, and uh, we knew we didn't know the crop. We do. We didn't have in-house expertise. So we uh, purchased a small farm and have been um, trying to learn that business. Um, and it's been hard. We've learned a lot of hard lessons. Um, you know, the known, known, unknown, knowns and the unknown, unknowns. Yep. And the, yeah. You know, the quote I'm butchering. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, but like, there were so many unknown unknowns. And um, I was just telling, you know, I was on a, a call for an hour. The first call this morning was an hour with our with our date farm manager, Ramon, working through like, all right, how's the crop coming in? What are you hearing from the neighbors? What, uh, what are the processors saying? How do we improve the operation? What are the costs looking like? How is yield? You know, trying to manage all these things while, you know, the, the fruit is maturing, the trees are living yeah. and they're getting, you know, we're heading to the end of summer. So we can't, wait to figure out what's going to happen we we're at full speed and our farm managers have to make decisions and, and we've got to operationally have um we need to have you know the right people in the right seats is what we always say so that they understand you know what is our mission what is our what are we doing here um and because they have to make decisions in real time with you know hurricanes coming for the first time in 30 years and um pests showing up that people didn't expect or never seen. And uh, at the end of the day, we, we're, we're growing food from living trees and palms. And so it's right. not a controlled environment. Uh, there's a lot of variables um, that, uh, that can pop up and we've got to be able to respond to. If, as if taking operational risk and being comfortable stepping into a new crop type weren't enough, right? You're also transitioning many of these farms to organic. And maybe mm -hmm. before before you answer that, I should have asked this at the beginning. Give us a sense of quantum. How many total acres are we talking about? And how many? And what's the division of those amongst dates, uh, pistachios, and and um, almonds? Yeah. So uh, gold leaf wide, we're about twelve thousand acres. Um, yeah. uh, farms um, that's split across uh, 26 farms um, and um, uh, mostly in California, but, uh, but a few in Arizona. And um, that's the simple math is basically 6,000 acres of almonds and 6,000 acres of pistachios. And we have a 33 acre date farm. So like when I say we, we did a small date experiment, experiment, like a 33 acre, like date sell for small a, date the farms are very expensive. But yeah. in terms of the magnitude of what we're doing, um, we wanted to take, we wanted to start small. Um, okay. um, and then so organic. Yeah. So we, um, the majority of our, of our uh, producing uh, almonds or mature almonds that are after four, four or five years old, we're converting to organic. So I'd have to go back and look at the specific number, but I, 
I, I think ballpark that's about 4,000 acres of our 6,000 almonds are going organic, are either already certified or in the process. Um, like in other crops, the organic certification is a three-year process. So mm -hmm. when we decide, hey, this farm, we're going to transition to organic, um, that starts a 36-month clock of, of transition time, which we affectionately call the march through the desert. Uh, because you, <laughs> that's such uh, a, that's such a true statement. <laughs> yeah. You know, cause you, you, you have, you bear all the operational challenges. You pay extra for all the cert organic certified inputs like compost, not synthetic nitrogen, like different types of pest control, and you don't get paid the organic premium for your crop. So it's, it can be a tough, uh, tough three years. Um, so, uh, uh, the of the the part of gold leaf that I oversee, I've got um, four uh, mature almond farms, about two thousand acres that two two different farm managers operate uh, on on the day to day business, and they own own those businesses. Um, and all of them are uh, already organic or will be for next year's crop. I've I've seen an interesting trend in the animal protein space, specifically mm. beef around regeneratively produced or grass-fed beef right yep but very little of that is actually certified organic right because mm -hmm. to me it seems like there's this either consumer misunderstanding about what the difference is between something that's omri or usda certified organic versus something yep. that is you know regeneratively produced or grass-fed um mm -hmm. Why do you see a similar um, misunderstanding at the consumer level of organic permanent crop fruits like what you're describing in nuts or not, mm -hmm. right? And if not, is that demand so strong that you would march through the desert for that premium? Yeah. Help me understand that decision cycle. Uh, yeah, so... Uh, good observation. Yes, it all shows up. And there's a few points of that that I'll try to hit. Okay. Um, yep. One is in our, in our crops, crops, mostly the nut crops, so mostly almonds and pistachios, um, there's something like less than 1% of the crop every year produced in the U.S. is organic. Um, for comparison, I, I'm sure these, these numbers are order, order of magnitude, right? But maybe mm -hmm. a few percentage off. I think like leafy greens are like 10%, maybe 12% of Okay. They're so like lettuce, kale, spinach, like 10, 12% organic. And I think bear, like fresh berries, strawberries, blueberries, blackberries, there's something like 8% organic or so similar, like, you know, mm -hmm. basically 10% of each of those are produced organically. Um, in our, in almonds, it's 1% or less and pistachios, it's basically zero. Like we started converting some organic pistachio um, farms that we purchased and, or we purchased them conventionally, we started transitioning them. And we couldn't find processors who had an organic pistachio product. It just it doesn't exist, really. Um, so it's a very small a percentage of our crops that have been organic. Um, we, the, you know, there's like, you mentioned like grass-fed and all these different, um, you know, kind of farming methods and practices that we can demonstrate to the consumer, you know, this food we're growing, be it livestock or produce has been grown differently than the kind of the standard conventional way. The only one that we see the consumer cares about in our crops is organic. Um, and, you know, this is, you know, this is a very MBA way to look at this, but, and what I mean by consumer cares is what will they pay for? 
Um, You know, we could, Goldleaf doesn't have our own nut brand or our own date brand. So we don't have uh, the challenge or the opportunity of being side by side on the shelf in Safeway or Vons or um, Costco or or pick your outlet. So we don't get to put our, you know, pollinator friendly, you know, uh, water wise, organic, like many of those labels apply to what we do, but we, it's not our package. We don't get to put those on there. So we don't have, we don't have really the ability to, you know, AB test in house. Does the consumer care about our, our limited mm-hmm. water use? Does the consumer care about pollinator habitat? Does it, or not really like it's a nice thing to have, but at the end of the day, they're not going to, they don't understand it to be valuable enough to pay more from it. But in organic, we do see that the consumer seems to care enough to pay more for it. Um, And that's so that's one reason why we shifted to organic is we think um, and actually going back to your operate, like why take the operational risk versus being a a landlord is because, you know, the virtuous cycle we're trying to build is we want to find the best people we possibly can. We want to pay them as best as possible so that we can do hard things and generate better returns and have long-term sustainability, financial sustainability, water sustainability, carbon sustainability, soil health, all the things. And so we got to find good people. We got to pay them really well. We got to do hard things. And one of those hard things is let's convert to organic and try to get that, that organic premium. But we, if we were just the landlord or, you know, a, a you know, absentee kind of landholder of some form, we we would have to find tenants or try to convince them or structure an agreement for them to do that and care about the long term and care about organic or not. So that's one of the levers because we take operational risks that we're we're trying to pull. Yeah, there'd be no incentive for you as a tenant to convert to organic because unless there's a you know a revenue crop share part of your lease agreement, mm-hmm. why? Right? There's there's no upside for you as a tenant to be able to do that. But right, if you own the land and you have the values that you just described around longer term sustainable product, not just economically sustainable, but environmentally and production sustainable, yeah, it makes it makes more sense. Yeah. How did you guys figure out that there was a consumer preference that was unique to tree nut products? that gave you enough assurance to say, okay, we'll, we'll do this. Well, we uh, started small. So in 20, so the company started in 2017 and 2018, we bought our first almond farm with the intention to convert it to organic. So we started, mm-hmm. you know, the walk through the desert on one farm before we started doing it uh, more and more places that, you know, that was, that farm received its full um, certification, I guess, two years ago now. Um, and so it's been kind of our, our pilot on less on the consumer side, but like, how do we farm organically? Cause there's so few, um, you know, because there are a few nuts produced organically, there are a few farmers doing it conven- or organically. And most of them who are doing it organically, we're doing it at a, at a smaller scale than we were trying to do. And um, we can learn a lot from them um, in, in our crop. Uh, there are certainly other almond growers that were doing organic almonds before us. Um, and you know, like my, my dad does some organic hazelnuts and there are, we can learn from that also. Um, but there are some things that are easier to do at a small scale than at a large scale, which is maybe, um, not obvious, but we do see, you know, um, our scale has the advantage where we can do bulk purchasing or we can get better equipment terms or we get better response from vendors, something, but it makes it hard to, 
run livestock through the orchard for grazing because we've got so many pieces of equipment and people and where, you know, the operation like my, my dad's, it's not so hard to, you know, fence it off and ask the neighbor to bring their sheep over and, you know, just mm. kind of stay out of it for a few weeks. It just, it's a little, he can be a little more mm. nimble on some things. So we learned from some of those growers. And on the consumer side, at least in almonds, there were, it's only one, it's only 1% or less of the, um, uh, or uh, almonds produced each year are organic, but um, that's still, you know, 1% of 3 billion pounds. So there, there, we could ask processors, we could talk to, there was enough data there for us to go um, see, is there a premium? Are there processors? Right. What could we expect? What's been the long-term average? And maybe there's only 10 years of long-term average. And it really depends on the processor. And it's not as, it's less of a commodity than just full conventional almonds. But there was enough data there where we could see, no, this is like a real, um, it's a big enough, small percent of the market, but there's enough of it that we can do it. And there will be offtake and we can't expect a premium and it's worth doing. Yeah, I mean, that, that makes a ton of sense as to why you would start small in that crop type, right? Because a lot of that infrastructure and road has been somewhat paved for you mm-hmm. already, even if it's not at a traditional commodity scale. Um, yeah. And there were a lot of questions. The other thing we kind of see in the organic premium world is like there's a smaller organic premium for dates uh, than there is for almonds in terms of percentage. And um, there's still an organic premium. We converted our date farm to organic. We bought it conventionally and we converted it um, and it's now certified as well. So there is a premium, but it's way easier to farm dates organically than it is almonds. There are fewer pests. There are basically no sprays you do conventionally you have to switch your fertility away. You know, you can't use UN32 or some, you know, standard synthetic fertilizers, but most of the work in dates is done by hand. So it's, if you're a conventional mm-hmm. grower and dates and you see a 30% premium to organic and it's like, well, all I got to do is switch to compost and file the paperwork for three years. Like I could probably do that. Interesting. Um, if you're in almonds and it's like, well, you can't use synthetic fertilizers. You can't use Roundup or 2,4-D or any of the other weed control things. You have to use pheromone disruption. You, if you have, you know, bacterial blast, you only have limited response. You, it's like, oh, I, I don't know. Mm. Like that's a lot of risk and a lot of yield loss maybe. And how would I do weed control at all? The almonds are harvested under the ground. So can I even harvest? Like there's a whole bunch of like, that would be hard. And so we see the premium holds a little tighter just because it's it's a bigger yeah, operational yeah, jump to yeah. make. But because the I operational, suspect, because it's easier in dates true. to do, yeah. it's not as high. It's not as high. And, and therefore, it's e- a little easier relative to conventional. Yeah. So more yeah. people do it. Yeah. So yep. the premium is a little tighter. Look, as, as, a, as, a, as a sensor guy, so here, I, I got to ask you about your experiences with ag tech and precision tools Mm -hmm. on your farms, maybe both kind of highlight, highlight and low light. (laughs) Yeah. Good and bad. Yeah. Well, there's, there's an obvious low light that I actually wasn't a part of, but I love to share as like the, the archetype of like what not to do for all the ag tech entrepreneurs that are leaning into ag. Um, There's a colleague of mine was working on a, um, was approached by a group that I think it was working on a pollination, like some sort of like robot pollination system um and they were excited they want to test it and he was like yeah you know you can bring it out and like we'll work on it the long story short is the robot didn't fit between the tree rows and so like it didn't like it physically couldn't enter the field 
And I tell that as a low light and like, I don't know, maybe that was his prototype and they knew that I, like, I wasn't there for that one. But I say that because sometimes uh, the, you know, the ideas are, are important, are good and will turn out to be a good product, but you've got to like get in the field and you like, there are things you don't know, you don't know if you're trying to come up with a new, a new solution. And, you know, I think um, there are many opportunities in ag for, for people that have experience with you know, a big tech or big data or AI firms are doing those things. Like we've, we've got to bring um, some of the, that industry expertise into ag. Um, uh, and a big part of that is like, let's get those people into ag and, and use that skill set to generate solutions rather than, um, you know, generating solutions in a, in a think tank and then assuming it will work. Right. Um, so that's, you know, that's where, um, that's a low light. Um, but there are a bunch of highlights, you know, like all of our farms use, um, soil moisture monitors, use weather stations, use uh, flow meters. Uh, like I said before, water is our most precious resource, both in terms of long-term sustainability, but also most, many of our farms, it's our most costly resource. So we have every incentive to, to steward that well. And the way we steward that is with the infrastructure we build, uh, you know, the filter stations, the drip irrigation lines, the um, the physical pipes and tubes, how we deliver water, and then how we monitor it to make sure that we're giving uh, the trees exactly what they need to make as much food as possible uh, and that we're not wasting uh, any. So uh, the combination of weather stations, uh, soil moisture monitors are like, um, those are highlights in that we use them all the time. Right. Um, those are also pretty full markets. You know, every every pistachio conference or almond they conference are. or you know there's a whole row of soil moisture probes of, of companies all of which have um probably pretty good products honestly um, but there's they're from our from the growers perspective from our perspective they're so similar that it's difficult to like uh it's um commodity is the wrong word but like it's hard to figure out like no, why would right. i why would i switch would I or switch? what what's is that actually better than this one? If not, we're just right. going to do this one everywhere. Man, such a great conversation, Sawyer. I want to be—I want to be mindful of your time. I know you got a jet here soon. Sure. Um, is there anything that you know we maybe haven't discussed that's specific or unique to uh, Gold Leaf that you want to make sure we touch on, or any other sort of veteran connection that you kind of want to bring in here? Give you the uh, last yeah, round. I don't. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think um, I don't think so. You know, it's it's been fun to share. A little bit about what we're up to at Gold Leaf and what um, and my my journey here. I I'd encourage um, any veterans who are interested in um, in farming and in, in business, etc., to you know reach out to me or to to any many of the other guests you've had on your podcast or yourself. Like this is a great you know a small and growing community. Um, right. And I'd also guess um, maybe one kind of challenge or inspiration to other vets is uh, you know I'm a vet in ag and i email most of the day right like i'm <laughs> you know i think a lot of the stories that get um that we hear about in veterans in ag is um you know starting uh in a homestead or a smaller a smaller ag operation and you know i hope to do that one day too um and and i grew up on a small you know family farm so i um i hope that my kids get to experience that and i get to do that one day as well but there's there's a lot of um there's for vets, especially there's a lot of opportunity in kind of big ag in, in corporate ag, quote unquote, if you will. Um, and there are groups 
you know, corporate farming gets a bad name, you know, the input companies and the seed companies, they're, everybody loves to make Netflix documentaries, you know, going after them. But there are big groups that are, that are looking to, to make food for a growing population and do so treating their people well and stewarding the environment well. And um, for, at, for vets who are motivated by that, um, they're out there and they can find them. Yeah. Um, and like one other anecdote, I connected with a buddy uh, or a guy who the former, uh, he's a Navy vet. He actually, we connected when he was looking, considering a, uh, an MBA. And then I didn't hear from him for a while. And then we, long story short, he's working for our neighbor at one of our farms. He ended up with another kind of big ag thing. And he's mostly focused on, on a, a electrification or solar project because to serve the power needs of that farm. And he'd never been a farmer before. And he was a Navy guy for many years. And, and so there are um, the, you know, the mold of a vet and ag can look is much yeah. broader than yeah. sometimes gets discussed. Yeah, that's such a great point, right? It doesn't have to fit any stereotype, either what that job was in the service or, you know, a, a traditional kind of post-military stereotype. Yeah. There is one question I want to ask you, Sawyer. Uh, sure. It's a bit off topic, uh, but I'm, I'm curious as to your perspective on this. Um, the, the suicide rate amongst the farming community relative mm -hmm. to the national average, three and a half times what the national average is. Um, in a lot of in a lot of interviews and episodes on the show here, we talk about the military veteran finding purpose again and in agriculture and being it being a form of you know therapy in in a lot of ways. Um, I, I wonder what your what your perspective on that is. Is it um, is it uh, inappropriate or presumptive to assume that um, the military veterans always you know find that find that sense of purpose in in the ag community are we doing are we doing the broader farming community a disservice by by not bringing to light the issue of suicides amongst um amongst the more general farming community by only yeah. highlighting the success of the veterans as they transition into the space just, just curious yeah. what your thoughts are on that yeah um I'm sure it's an overstatement to say every vet who enters agriculture will find fulfillment. Like that just, really? you know, like that can't be true as like a blanket statement. Um, and the suicide rate among veterans, as you well know, is, is way too high also. And I, I mean, I have friends and family who took their lives in the service or after, and I mean, it doesn't, you ask any vet basically, Same. you know, who's been either in for a while or in and then out for a while. And those stories are far too prevalent. And, they're all unique and they're all tragic. And um, I think the that is talked about more than the farming suicides. I actually wasn't aware of that, that data that it's that much higher. Um, so yeah, I would, I would hate for a veteran who's, um, who's in a, in a dark spot or having a tough time to think, Oh, if I just get into farming, then I'll, I'll, it'll, it'll all get better. Um, if you, if I can promise them that if they get into farming, it'll be hard whether it's corporate farming, if it's small farming, it's going to be really hard. Um, and, and I wonder though, going back to crop insurance and um, things like that, the risks, I wonder if there's some, if there's a, a related thing there. And, and what I mean is as a farmer, you can do everything right all year or in permanent crops for many years. And uh, you can get 
like, you know, with a, a freak storm or a freak frost or a fire, like it is gone and it is totally out of your control. And I can only imagine that that uh, can spur people to, to, to dark, to dark places. And um, there's, you know, you can have crop insurance in most crops, like there's a financial support for there, but that's only one component of it. If you've spent your life, if you've spent your savings, if you've spent, if you've strained your marriage and asked your kids and like to invest in something you were passionate about. And then a once in 30 year hurricane comes through and physically destroys it. Like that's devastating. And, um, so, um, it's devastating. And, um, so get crop insurance, but, but engage in with your community, right? Find, find purpose in your work, but find people who care for you and that you can, who can support you and who can, um, um, you know, whether that's fellow vets or that's your family or whatever. Um, it's not easy. Don't do it alone. And um, reach out if you need help. There are two key takeaways that stand out to me following this two-part series with Sawyer. The first is that every job is a people job. Yes, I know it sounds cliche and obvious, but hierarchical command systems can work through structure, relationship, or some combination of the two. What Sawyer saw in the Army was a lot of things getting done through relationship rather than hierarchy. If you just took the time, he thought, to engage with someone on a human level, you had a much greater impact and things just moved easier. Pouring into others is not about unfound second chances or acknowledging good performance where there is none, but rather it's about giving someone an opportunity to excel. This happened time and time again in Sawyer's early life, and it cemented a philosophy that he still carries with him today, and a philosophy that I think is worth emulating, or at least discussing here in this forum. The second is to have the capacity to be different. And what I mean by that is that Goldleaf Farming embodies this in their strategy on farmland management and investment. Others in the space take a more prosaic approach, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just not that different. Goldleaf has built a strategy to do more than just invest or manage farmland, but once they made that strategy, they then had to realize that they needed to build a team to execute on that strategy with guys like Sawyer. So the point for me is, you know, don't be afraid to do it differently. But if you do, know that you might need to build differently in order to execute on that vision. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Vets and Ag podcast brought to you by AGD Consulting. If you enjoyed this episode and think other military veterans and supporters would benefit from these insights and stories, please give us a review and share on social media. You can also find previous episodes and learn more about AGD Consulting by visiting our website. Finally, if you have any recommendations of future guests who are military veterans or supporters leading the way in agribusiness, ag tech, or agripreneurship, please send them our way. I'm your host, Mike Desa, and until next time, stay frosty.